And this morning, as the season of Advent begins, we're shifting from our fall focus on the letter of Paul to the Ephesians to the Gospel of Matthew. Christmas is about beginnings, especially the coming of the Son of God in the flesh in the form of a baby boy. And so song and scripture for the rest of the month are going to work together to focus our minds and hearts on these beginnings, which have everything to do with what we might call our endings, our eternal reality, our eternal status. Before we get to baby born in a manger in Matthew's gospel, he points us to an even earlier beginning in the genealogy of Jesus. It is, and it should be striking that the entire New Testament kicks off with the Savior's Ancestry.com results. These are lists of names, ancestors, where did Jesus come from? And it's not exactly a top five passages in the Bible that we're motivated to memorize. It's not exactly a go-to passage to find encouragement, uh, a source of strength in a time of trial. Uh, since our text this morning is almost entirely made up of a list of names, I'd like to do something we've never done before here at GRC. We're going to use a song as our scripture reading. This is from Andrew Peterson's Christmas album, and it's called Matthew's Begats. That word is from the old uh, King James English, which simply means gave birth to. And our text starts with verse 1, not part of these lyrics, so let me just read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Listen and follow along on the screen. Abraham had Isaac, Isaac he had Jacob, Jacob he had Judah and his kin. Then Perez and Sarah came from Judah's woman Tamar. Perez he brought Hezron up and then came Aram, then Amenadab, then Nashan, who was then the dad of Salmon, who with Rahab fathered Boaz. Ruth, she married Boaz, who had Obed, who had Jesse. Jesse, he had David, who we know as king. David, he had Solomon by dead Uriah's wife. Solomon, well, you all know him. He had good old Rehoboam, followed by Abijah, who had Asa. Asa had Jehoshaphat, had Joram, had Isaiah, who had Jotham, then Ahaz, then Hezekiah. Followed by Manasseh, who had Amon, who was Amen, who was father of a good boy named Josiah, who grandfathered Jehoiakim, who caused the Babylonian captivity, because he was a liar. And then he had Shealtiel, who begat Zerubbabel, who had Abiud, who had Eliakim, Eliakim had Azer, who had Zadok, who had Achim. Achim was the father of Eliab then. He had Eliezer, who had Nathan, who had Jacob. Listen very closely, I don't want to sing this twice. Jacob was the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, mother 
Amen. Let me pray. Lord, the lists of names in the Bible don't typically inspire thoughts of you. They don't typically fill our hearts with gladness. They typically cause us to tune out, to wonder uh, what value in history these names continue to have, but Lord, this is unique. This is the lineage of the Savior Himself, and though we don't know many of these names, perhaps we should, Lord, speak to us through a genealogy. Speak to us about beginnings of our Savior and show us more and more clearly the work that you sent your Son to accomplish in his adventing, in his coming to this earth to be among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, By the way, if you don't know Andrew Peterson, uh, that Christmas album is a must-have um, I forget what it's called, Behold the Lamb of God. And uh, that song is on that uh, brilliant song, brilliant uh, handwriting, drawing, um, not so brilliant lighting and cinematography, but uh, that was the best we could find. Um, we're going to talk about three things this morning to walk us through this passage. First, uh, there's no story without the story, the story. There are no little lowercase s stories without the big S, capital S, story. I'll never forget one of uh, my first holiday meals up with Cedar's family in Vermont. Uh, We had a roast turkey. This huge bird came out of the oven. We let it rest. Uh, Somebody carved the white meat off and brought it to the table and said, let's eat. And I was thinking, what about the best parts? (laughs) The dark meat, anything on the bone. It was disrespected. It was ignored. It was left in the roasting pan to be thrown out later. I couldn't believe it because I had to basically go dumpster diving to get my dinner, to get some um, drumstick meat or thigh meat, uh, because I grew up with the opposite. My grandmother would only eat meat off the bone. She would never touch a big hunk of turkey or steak or a pork chop. Um, And if, when it was socially acceptable, she would grab that whole turkey carcass and bring it into the kitchen and pick out every little morsel from every little bone. Lots of people who read Scripture come across Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, and figure it's just a bunch of bones. But there's some good meat between those bones. There's treasure to be found, and it doesn't require a lot of picking through, a lot of digging. It simply requires looking up and, in particular, looking back in order to see the big picture from the Old Testament. Jesus' roots, if you will. A Canadian theologian named Douglas Hall says that in the U.S. and Canada especially, Christians are not motivated by the same factors and fears other Christians around the world are, um, or the fears that our predecessors were motivated by. Death doesn't scare us as much as it used to, for example. We have modern medicine, modern health care, modern science. Hell is not so believable anymore. 
and the Christian message isn't as influential as it used to be. But this is what he writes. Uh, Look on the screen. He says, what eats away at us is, quote, the gnawing suspicion that we may be superfluous, extra, incidental, an accidental species with no real purpose on earth. It is the fear that our individual lowercase s stories make no impression and will leave no memory on earth as history just moves along. We have this gnawing suspicion that our lives, our individual stories may be superfluous. I can't say that word. Superfluous. Extra. One common solution to that fear sounds like this. You might hear it on the radio. You might read it in a self-help book. You might hear it on Dr. Phil. And uh, the common solution sounds like this. Life has meaning to the extent that you positively impact others' lives around you. And there's some good in that kind of statement. You drop a few dollars into the Salvation Army can on the way out of the grocery store. You volunteer between Thanksgiving and Christmas at the food shelter and help those who are struggling along. You, you give to a GoFundMe effort for uh, an individual or a family going through a health crisis. Any efforts to generate positive karma, they are good actions that can bring positive change to people in need in a time of crisis. But what, what we might say is lacking in that kind of thinking, in that attempted solution to address this gnawing suspicion, is that good feeling that you've done something positive only lasts so long. And it provides no measure of success no standard above which you know you've achieved meaning, below which you are left properly in despair. How much good do I need to do? How often do I need to do it? It'll depend on uh, each of our makeups, personalities, right? How, how insecure I am, how much of that gnawing suspicion of my extraneous life I need to overcome. That's no solution to a question of purpose. Matthew's goal, as he starts his gospel account of the Messiah, Matthew's goal is to connect each of our lowercase s stories to the capital S story, which is his story, history. God's cosmic, God-authored plan the plot, if you will, to keep that story motif, to rescue his sinful people. That story, with a capital S, gives significance and meaning to every personal story, with a lowercase s. It's a cosmic story that began at creation, that quickly turned one page in in our Bibles, typically, that quickly turns sour. The plot line goes south, In Genesis chapter 3, we find the choice of humanity to live apart from God, to cultivate a sense of independence, and every thought and every action and every word along those lines, we properly label sin. The plot line gets tense. There's conflict. The dramatic plot then unfolds uh, over the centuries until God's 
merciful and compassionate heart is fully revealed in his solution to this problem through the life and death of the hero he sends to rescue. And Matthew chapter 1 intends to reveal the identity of this main character of the story, which gives meaning and significance to any of our lowercase s little personal stories. His identity is shaped by those who came before him, his roots. His ability to bring this cosmic story from beginning to end to to its intended um, consummation to its climactic ending, his ability to do that is connected to who came before. Secondly, we find in addition to there's no story without the story, there's no beginning without an end. The first thing that Matthew says about Jesus the Messiah is he's the son of David. That's interesting because Matthew starts by jumping ahead, by picking a name out of the middle of this list of names he's about to provide, and the name of David being out of order is Matthew's point. He wants to point out something before he even begins. And it's important to note that Matthew is primarily writing for a Jewish audience with a background in the Old Testament Scriptures. And so for the vast majority of his primary audience, Son of David would have been a trigger phrase. It connects way back to 2 Samuel 7 when the Lord was saying to David about his son Solomon and about the kingly line to come from Solomon, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It was clear he wasn't just talking about one man because that man was going to die. It was clear he was talking about Solomon, your son, who will succeed you on the throne, and all of your descendants in this line. I will establish a throne of his, plural, kingdom forever, forever. No other kingdom lasts forever. This one will. Son of David was a trigger to the Jewish audience. Second Samuel 7, had they been good Sunday school boys and girls And Matthew intends with that trigger to show that Jesus, the son of David, also fulfills the prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. There is no beginning without an end And Matthew starts by pointing to the end of the genealogy about whom these promises of God throughout the centuries was spoken. The second thing Matthew says in verse 1 is that Jesus is also the son of Abraham. That's where the genealogy begins, not at um, uh, way back uh, towards creation like Luke's gospel does. But with Abraham, the man through whom God promised to bless the whole world, back in Genesis chapter 12. And now, roughly in the New Testament, uh, in the begin- at the end of this genealogy, Jesus' life, roughly 2,000 years after Abraham, in the birth of a baby boy born in Bethlehem, this worldwide blessing impact is about to burst forth, promise 2,000 years old, is about to become fuller reality. 
in every other uh, biblical genealogy, the list that follows is named after the first person in the list. Genesis is a great example. Genesis is known as uh, the book of generations because there are these literary markers throughout the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 11, for example, starts, this is the account of or the generations of Terah, who happened to be Abraham's daddy. And then later on, this is the account of Isaac, and then this is the account of Jacob. Those genealogies all start with the, the great-grandfather, uh, if you will, and then they go down. They're named after the beginning. But when we turn again to the New Testament, where salvation history is going to reach its climax in the story, this God-authored plot to rescue His sinful people... This genealogy in verse 1 is not named for the person at the beginning. It's named for the person at the end. Why? The obvious question or the obvious answer? Because none of these names, whether ancient patriarchs or powerful kings or relative nobodies, none of these names has any significance apart from their contribution to the story that reaches fulfillment in the coming Messiah, Jesus. It's all about Him from beginning to end. This isn't just a family list. If Jesus is who He says He is, He is the hope of the nations. He's the one through whom humanity's created purpose will be restored. The gnawing suspicion solved about insignificance. He is the true royal son to whom alone all praise, all worship, all adoration is due. Lastly, there's no salvation without sinners. What I mean by that is not that sin is a good thing because it brings about salvation. You know, it triggers the the heart of God, and therefore we're thankful for sin because it brings salvation. Not at all. That's not what I'm saying. What I do mean here is that salvation is pretty messy because of the ugliness of sin, which causes physical and spiritual and moral and relational breakdown and decay throughout all of life. Nothing in creation is immune to sin's corrupting influence. And this genealogy, in a not-so-subtle way, points to the messiness of God's plan of bringing about salvation. From um, two of Paul's letters, we get a glimpse of people, likely religious leaders, boasting about their social status based on their lineage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11... He says this, what anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. He's playing along with this game. You want to talk about spiritual lineage? Okay, let's stack it up. Let's go mano a mano. In Philippians chapter 3, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. You want to talk pure spiritual, uh, pure national lineage, 
paulsancestry.com results will stack up against anyone else's. This is, this is the game he's playing to undermine the popular competition in that culture and day. Some Americans today might brag about their ancestors coming over on the Mayflower. I'm not an immigrant. I trace my line all the way back then. Or that their great-grand-whatever fought in the War of Independence. You know, my people, whatever their last name is, we go back longer than anybody. Um, I remember in fifth grade at the public library, I had a little argument with this girl who threatened me because her dad owned the library. I almost fell for it. (laughs) Um, Whether you feel superior or inferior because of social status, the common root in the human heart is pride. It's pride. It's the competitive pleasure of being above others. That sin affects horizontal relationships for sure, but there is always an impact on the vertical between you and God. Listen to C.S. Lewis who wrote this, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. That's what pride does to us. It eats away. It, it, it affects interactions, but it also blocks out something of seeing the glory of God looking upward. When Matthew puts this genealogy together, and by the way, it is a selective list to um, highlight some symbolism in the 14 generations that verse 17 uh, points out. When Matthew puts this genealogy together, he reminds anyone who takes pride in their national lineage, in being a descendant of David, that even David's son, King Solomon, was the offspring of a marriage that came through David's lust, murder, adultery, and government cover-up. Matthew's little comment in uh, verse 6, Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, it's a dig. Andrew Peterson's lyrics, um, I think, are brilliant. You know, he sings this, you know, he sings about dead Uriah's wife. It's a dig because this is part of the national lineage of anyone who would take pride. Oh, you're the son of David. Wonderful. The guy who lusted, murdered, committed adultery, and covered it all up. The purest of Hebrews of Hebrews. Like the Apostle Paul, do you really, Matthew's going to tell us from the beginning of salvation history's climax, as we turn to the New Testament, do you really want to take pride in that? Do you really want to boast about being a descendant of David? Because he wasn't perfect. The Old Testament is ultimately no hall of fame. Quite honestly, it's more of a hall of shame more really bad kings leading Israel than good kings. Most of these names whom we know very little about, what we do know is that so many of them were unfaithful to God. That's what the Scriptures record for us to remember. He was unfaithful. Next, he lived this many years. He was laid uh, you know, in the tomb. His son succeeded him, and he was a bad king. That's basically what the, the majority of what we know of these names. Uh, um, most of them, they're unfaithful, king after king after king, 
until the true son of Abraham and the true son of David appears on the scene. Jesus is the ultimate king, the one, again, who is alone worthy of worship. In addition to dead Uriah's wife, Matthew includes four other women's names, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and then, of course, Mary. Including women in ancient genealogies was incredibly rare. In a patriarchal society, the family identity was based on the male. But what's most interesting about the inclusion of of five women, four by name, is that it omits, the decision to include women omits prominent women like Sarah and Rebecca and Leah. They're not mentioned at all. Why include these women? Well, let's review them real quickly. Tamar, uh, who shows up in verse 3, deceived her father-in-law Judah and seduced him. Not to put the blame on her, he was far more guilty. That's who Tamar is. Rahab was a prostitute, and we remember her because she saved the spies who were scooping out the promised land before Joshua led the Israelites to conquer Canaan. Ruth, quite frankly, was damaged goods. She was a Moabite woman. Her husband died. Her husband's father died. She's a widow in a culture that has no place for widows, and she left no male heir. She left no children, period. These three women, and maybe even Bathsheba, because she married Uriah the Hittite, perhaps all of these women, other than Mary, were non-Jews, reminding people that even from the beginning, salvation involved the nations. This is no exclusive club this climax of God, God's plot to rescue His sinful people. No one is outside of the bounds of the salvation plan. In each of these stories involving the women, there's messiness in relationships. Some of them would qualify for a Jerry Springer show, especially Judah and Tamar, you know, dressing up. She dressing up as like a prostitute. Um, her first husband died. His, his youngest next brother was supposed to marry her. And, you know, it is an absolute dysfunctional mess. But maybe Matthew's motivation in mentioning these women is because their collective stories set the stage for Jesus' birth to an obscure unmarried young woman under the suspicion of moral scandal. Lots of people whispered about Mary giving birth to Jesus. Martha, when was the wedding? And when was that boy born? Mm-hmm. Never thought he looked like Joseph, his daddy. That was the whisper. And perhaps Matthew intends to show Not that um, women are at fault at all, but perhaps he's showing by injecting this very countercultural element as the New Testament begins that this is the way God works. And it's so different from the ways of the world. You know, if Matthew, the gospel writer, were making this stuff up, A, he wouldn't choose to skip 
uh, figures, he'd make it as scientifically, historically accurate as possible, just so nobody could ever say he, you know, uh, this was inaccurate. He, he wouldn't have been selective, and he would have, um, and we, if we were authoring this plot, we would have brought the Messiah into the household of a royal family. We would have had him born with pomp and circumstance, the product of a union of power families, you know, Roosevelt's and Kennedy's. Let's, let's pick these two families, um, you know, from the 20th century and, and have a baby boy born to this couple. And this child would have been born like little Prince George of Cambridge, William and Kate's son, with eyes all on him, raised in privilege, trained to be a, a leader of leaders. But if Matthew could have borrowed Paul's words, he would have reminded us, no, no, that's not the way God works. God chose the, low, uh, the, the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong so that no one may boast before Him. There is no salvation without sinners. And Jesus came, He advented, to rescue the hopeless. He came to those who understand and admit that your only hope, your only source of significance, your only path to freedom is through humble, utterly dependent faith in the one who is the beginning and the end of God's salvation plan. Jesus has come, and He is coming again. Let that be our hope. Let's pray. Lord, this is no mere list of names. This is the way you have worked across the centuries, across the millennia, to bring about the rescue of the lost, us, to give us hope, to fulfill your promises. And we pray that you would more and more give us eyes to see, ears to hear, heart to receive this greatest message of life and life eternal, accessed only through faith in the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.